Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video. As seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to the Video Insiders. I am here with my co-host, Mr. Dror Gill. Dror, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And hello to my co-host, Mark Donegan. Well, it's always great to be on the microphone with you. And we have another amazing episode. We are talking today with Nick Krasminski from Fubo TV. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I, I really appreciate the, uh, you know, basically letting me blab about video for a little while. So tell us who you are and what you do at Fubo TV. Sure, sure. So um, I started Fubo about, so it's coming up on three years now. Um, When I originally joined Fubo, I started as an iOS engineer, mainly focused on uh, playback of our AV player, um, particularly with a Swift framework that would be shared between both our iOS and our tvOS apps. Then eventually, um, as Fubo ultimately grew, we kind of realized that um, we really were focusing hiring on mobile in the beginning. And ultimately, we realized that these connected televisions, you know, what I've also heard referred to as in the industry pucks, right? Um, you know, because they look like hockey pucks. Uh, the Apple TV and, uh, you know, and the Rokus of the world um, actually had a lot more viewership than ultimately, you know, your simple iPhone. And so over time, I was actually able to shift myself into the both. I got to both start the repository for the Apple TV and then eventually take over the work from the contractors on our Roku applications, um, mainly focusing more on the front end side of the house. And then currently, as of about a year and a half ago now, I am now pretty much uh, the lead engineer, uh, mainly responsible for encoding all of our VOD content, which to this day right now, I ran the number, is 29,000 assets in production right now. It's, it, you know, you have to remember, we have Discovery's content, right? We have their entire library of content. We have NBC, we have CBS, we have Fox, right? And so... These titles ultimately add up. And so, yeah, uh, ultimately on a day-to-day basis, currently I manage and ultimately encode or transcode the actual source files that come in from given uh, various providers on a daily basis and turn them into streamable uh, assets that then eventually are playable in Fubo TV across all platforms. How many live channels do you have? Uh, I would have to go back. The last I checked, we're you know we're well over a hundred. We're well over a hundred, right? Um, and ultimately, we have 4K content uh, as well. And so, portion of what uh, you know, I know we're going to speak about here, and eventually, what I what I gave a talk about before is ultimately the concept of supporting 4K across in the OTT platform, because I believe we still are the only. Um, ODT provider that has 4K content. For, for live, it's really uh, very unique uh, to do 4K live over the top. I mean, there are cable and satellite services that do 4K, um, but uh, but over the top. Yeah, but to have like yeah, exactly to have the infrastructure that goes across all of it, and I and I'm pretty you know I'm pretty positive that ultimately a lot of our competitors would in theory have the same contractual uh, potentials to go ahead and uh, grab those 4K satellite feeds that we get from certain providers. And we just ultimately were able to kind of pull that together nimbly and quickly. And I guess uh, while you were developing all of these uh, uh, video uh, technologies and applications and uh, doing the workflow on on the backend side and the front end, uh, you you, uh, quickly realized what everybody knows in the video world, that uh, um, there's a big difference between uh, theory and practice. There's even the saying that goes... uh, the difference between theory and practice is much larger in practice than in theory. So um, 
Um, tell us uh, about some, uh, uh, some area of video encoding which, which surprised you, where you learned that actually um, things are not really as they should be. In video, there is these things called you know, standards. There are these things called, um, you know, there, there's practices that have been done in the broadcast world for years prior to you, right? And so something to learn that you need to understand theory. Right. And so one of the first things I think, you know, to note on this concept of theory and practice is really that, you, you know, you're not going to actually be able to Google the answer sometimes. Right. <laughs> you might be able to Google to find the PDF to ultimately that has some standards thing body ultimately talking about something that eventually you need to actually read. Yeah. Right. And so I guess the talk on theory first is you need to actually go and and actually put that effort behind the theory as to why the, the task you're potentially trying to accomplish needs to be uh, is done in the way that it's done right I will not name names here but ultimately we had a vendor that ultimately was um, you know doing our encoding for all of our bot assets prior to the current project that I'm working on right and so what ended up happening uh, that we noticed and this was just like that one bug that nobody could ever figure out or try to under you know try to get to the bottom of and I actually remember as I was working on the Apple TV and, and Roku front ends I was particularly um, like we actually made the effort to move off of HLS into Dash on Roku's in particular so that this problem wouldn't exist, which was ultimately audio mm. drifting, right? And so long story short, uh, eventually the solution was to change provider uh, vendors, right? And so we did that and that uh, ultimately led us into the architecture, you know, that's the history before ultimately I'll explain the architecture that, that currently lives today. Now, the current architecture that we have ultimately goes something like this. So we have Aspera that ultimately uh, we, we manage and host ourselves, right? And so that Aspera is where uh, all providers will eventually deliver to and send those given uh, source files. And we're talking, I think numbers are about a receive give or take over 500 to 600 10 gigabyte files a day, right? Through this Aspera instance. And so this Aspera instance ultimately then dumps those files into an S3. And then that S3, uh, you know, then there's ultimately a, I would call it more of like an orchestrator uh, service, which is actually where I write my code on a day-to-day -day basis, which pretty much pulls that S3 and as files and metadata, sorry, sorry, I also have to mention the fact that when a provider will send that video, they will also send uh, a cable lab spec, spec metadata explaining what that video is, right? And so once we receive both of those and we know we have the video and the metadata, that this orchestrator service will then eventually go ahead and actually um, queue up the transcoding process. So that, uh, excuse me, that, that storage, so it at, acts uh, like a hot folder. So whenever a new file comes in, it just triggers a process to go out and encode it. So we've tried to, so it's funny, you mentioned that, right? Because originally, we talk about theory here, right? Um, originally, we, you know, on S3, you can ultimately send like notifications right. and you can Messages. have, um, you can basically say when a, when a, yeah, you can have like, you can have S3 tell you right. when something shows up, right? Now, uh, this was a fun little uh, thing to ultimately work on, which was that actually I found that being quite, uh, it, there were issues with it when we were first, when I was first orchestrating working on it. And so the actual way that we, we actually took a, an approach was ultimately, uh, we're gonna go ahead and set a CloudWatch rule, right? Which will ultimately ping my web service, which is that, uh, that orchestrator code that we talked about, which will then eventually with a given path, pretty much just ask Amazon on like every hour Go ahead and check this path. Do you see anything new there? Rather than sitting there and waiting and listening and being reliant on Amazon's notifications to show up when something mm -hmm. showed up, right? We ultimately pull that S3 and actually say, hey, 
I know I have these files. All right. Is there something that I don't, that I really don't have in my database right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So you did polling instead of uh, automatic triggering by when, when a file appears. The first thing that um, as I was building the system out in its original form that, that really started to become a, a problem was ultimately, how do I know what I want to set the configurations of this given transcode? Because every video that I receive is obviously not going to be identical in process, right? And so uh, one of the, the first step ultimately is as soon as I realize I have something that I can work on, um, I'm going to go ahead and FF probe it and then create a JSON file and ultimately understand what it is that showed up, right? From the video codec perspective, right? So analyze the source content and format so you know what to do with it, how to deal with it. Yeah, and so I guess this kind of like leads into ultimately the, the current provider that we use, which is basically Hybrick, which is now Dolby, Dolby Hybrick, right? And so they obviously have different uh, you know, ways to do something similar in their system. But from my perspective, I'd rather understand what I see and then build the configuration file than ultimately rely on their logic, right? And not that I'm saying that the logic would ultimately be bad, right? It's just now I have a bit more control and I'm ultimately like when I want to fix something potentially that has to do with a configuration, I'm not going in and trying to work on just, you know, uh, understand Hybrick's way of doing things, but rather how do I understand this thing and, and I actually have code that I can work with. So for example, you, you rely on the resolution, see if you need the 4K workflow or an HD workflow. Yep. Uh, for also uh, audio tracks is mainly a big thing as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Did they deliver me six channel audio? Did they deliver me what languages, right? Um, uh, closed captions. So did the, ultimately the source file that we receive have C608s or 708s? Did, it, um, did they deliver a, a, a separate sidecar file, which actually happens with some providers as well? Um, and so, you know, you have all these ifs and else's that kind of happen based on every provider delivers us a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And so based on that, we, you know, this, this process I like to call kind of like the normalization of then eventually getting to the transcode state. Right. Because once you understand the content, the rest is pretty much uh, straightforward. Uh, but there are so many input types and file formats and, you know, number of channels, metadata that you need to understand. But once you do that, then... You know, you, you probably know what to do in the transcoding. Yeah. And so now, obviously, we send, we basically create a configuration based on what I ultimately know I have, right? Based on that FF probe data and uh, any other given constraints that might be around there. Um, and then we send that off to be transcoded um, via an API. And so that API ultimately right now hits, you know, Dolby Hybrid. But at the end of the day, um, in reality, the way I've tried to design this is that it could be cloud agnostic and provider agnostic to the degree that I just now have built this thing called the configuration to be transcoded, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to go to that particular provider. I know that, um, you know, there's lots of other vendors, maybe one day even, you know, we'll have our own version of an encoder, you know what I mean? And so that configuration to me is just a configuration to be encoded and the settings that I would want to set, you know, see the given outputs that come from it, right? That's smart. And how do you manage the load if you get a lot of files and do, do you spread it out to different servers or you just send them off through the API and then the encoding uh, service uh, takes care of? Uh... But one of the main reasons why we chose Dolby Hybrid was because they leverage spot instances, right? And so they connect to a given cloud, which uh, currently for us is AWS, right? And so that you know goes ahead. Basically, they queue up. They're handling the concept of queuing up jobs. And then eventually, so if we got a thousand files that showed up in one minute, right, that concept will then be queued in their system to then arbitrarily be worked on based on a bid price that I set, right? Mm, okay, I see. There really isn't a need to see the asset 
um, you know, live right away. Now that is something that, you know, it, it, you know, as our system has matured that we're trying to get to, right. But, um, the time from the time, the moment the file shows up in that, you know, from provider delivering to that Aspera to that Aspera going to that S3 to us eventually transcoding, right. Uh, end to end doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, instantaneous, right. It's not an on the fly system and in its current state. And then how many renditions do you create for each file? Um, as we've matured and the platform has grown and, and I've tweaked things over time, currently in the given state for a non 4K piece of content, I believe there is, if I'm not mistaken, there's 13 uh, renditions, uh, five, about five and six, ultimately five ABCs, five HEBCs, and usually two, um, one EAC3, and then one AAC fallback for uh, players who ultimately can't handle EAC3. That's interesting, Nick. Do you do you create a a, a separate profile, um, you know, a, a a separate stack for the TV and mobile devices, or do you have those ten layers? And then, you know, based on the device, you use the appropriate resolution and codec. Actually, today and over the past couple of days, we we you know, I'm starting to notice something on Fire TVs where. Ultimately, these Fire TVs, in particular, um, are you know if if the user ultimately hovers around 10 megabits of bandwidth, right? We basically see the player on the Fire TV never really go above, um, you know, uh, basically on on Fire TVs on a major screen, it's never going to either any not even getting close to the 720p, right? And so we actually have in our Fire TV play playback uh, interface where you can force bandwidth, right? And so over the weekend, I actually was like browsing through customer tickets and then kind of looking through and, and saw a little bit of a common theme here. And one of the customer support agents here, which was awesome of him, ultimately suggested the user actually force um, the highest bit rate, right? Which is something that they have the, the option to do on our, on our Fire TV. It actually then, you know, it, it solved that customer's problem, right? And so to, you know, this really starts getting me to think about and what I'm hoping to get done, hopefully in this, in this quarter here at Fubo, which is going to be this concept of, all right, let's optimize a, you know, a manifest, right? That's not potentially going to have as many lower renditions, right? But maybe more higher renditions. So we might force a little bit of a front load on that player, but at least that user and that consumer will actually stay at a, a quality on their Fire TV that they actually can watch the content at, right? And so this is something that, uh, as I said, perfect timing, because this is definitely something that I'm realizing is is definitely the next stage of maturity in the platform, right? A lot of services have chosen to build on open source um, and FFmpeg, you know, in terms of their media processing framework. Um, you chose Hybrick and, uh, um, you know, you explained why. Is Do you know if your former vendor, the original vendor, did they build on FFmpeg or did you guys, you know, try on FFmpeg and find that that wasn't suitable? I'm pretty sure this is the case in, in hybrid as well, is that they are just a simple X264, X265 fork with their with a little bit of work. You know, they are not um, as you guys are, right? Uh, an encoding organization, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, our prior vendor, now here's the thing, when we were debugging this audio drifting issue, right, um, we kind of narrowed it down to the application of DRM, meaning we would take that same exact asset, and I remember working on this with uh, Thomas, who is uh, an ex-coworker now, he's at CBS, right, and we ultimately took this content, and we did do exactly what you mentioned, which is ultimately encoded ourselves, right, um, go ahead and try to play it, or ultimately not do the application of DRM in their system, and so... What it came down to is when that content was DRM protected, it actually had the drifting, 
when it wasn't deer unprotected, we never saw this drifting. And so this made it even more difficult to really, you know, debug back content, right? And to have somebody, you know, have the vendor even look at it, right? And so if it was truly the application of DRM that was ultimately happening uh, and the way that that vendor was particularly applying DRM to the given, uh, you know, outputted TS files, then that, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, from, from what I personally use, I use Bento 4 for my encryption and MP4 box, right, yeah. for applying encryptions. And so I'm not sure what they were doing there, but I do believe they were more than an X264, X2654. So you're actually, so Hybrick is not um, uh, doing anything for DRM for you. You're handling that separate. No, no, no. So, so Hybrick does have a packaging step, right? And so they're, uh, they do do packaging as well um, that you can describe the job in its, in its purest form saying you're going to go ahead and here are my renditions for targets is what they call it, right? Um, and then eventually you have these packaging steps. And so the way that they were packaging it obviously came very different than ultimately what was happening in our previous vendor in the sense that, you know, we would do not have any audio drift uh, coming out of the hybrid platform, right? You you mentioned previously um, AVC and HEVC. Um, and I saw a very nice presentation that you gave uh, last month about uh, packaging um, HEVC and AVC together uh, in manifest, uh, and uh, you explained that some players like it, some don't, and you need to do some some tricks. So, can you give our listeners some overview of uh, what you've built in um, multi codec delivery? Yeah, sure. So, um, ultimately, I was tasked with the concept that you know our content people were going to be going out, and uh, uh, Smithsonian in particular um, was was basically had 4K content for us to deliver. Right? You know, we needed to go ahead and build this uh, a multi codec playlist now. Someone made a really, really awesome presentation on uh, ultimately how to do multi-codec HLS, right? And so this PDF uh, version of this guy's presentation ultimately became my my Bible, right? And so I, I you know, he really broke down, and they did they did some really in-depth uh, conversations about like, all right, ultimately, does the player even play if we put just HEVC renditions, right? Um, does it take more battery on like mobile phones, right? So ultimately. Um, actually decode HEVC versus AVC, right? Like he really, really went in depth on this. And so um, he also gave a lot of examples saying, all right, this is what Apple says the specification is. This is what we've tried. And we've tried hybrid combinations of basically this thing called AVC and this thing called HEVC, rather than ultimately, if you look at Apple's uh, specifications, right? They're gonna say, if you have 2,700 video at H.264, you're gonna need to also have 2,700 video at H.265 or you know a comparable uh, uh, transcode variation, right? And so, really, I, you know, I from reading that you know, presentation, I really got myself going into, all right, I want to go ahead and build one playlist and let the players, you know, this is the whole concept, I, I think, behind Dash and HLS, right? Which is let the player know what it can handle. And it, based on giving it lots of options, it's going to choose what it, you know, wants. Once again, theory, right? Theory. <laughs> compared to um, the real world. And so, you know, I go ahead and produce, um, you know, a couple test streams that have everything packaged in one package. And I start off by first giving it to Apple. Um, they throw it through the Apple players and everything seems fine. Um, I go to the Fire TVs and so the, the dash side of the house, uh, just to note, there's only one player still at Fubo that uses HLS for VODs. You can guess who, right? Um, and ultimately, everybody else is on the dash side of the house. And so... Even though, by the way, just a note here, 
uh, Roku and Fire TV, uh, which is ultimately ExoPlayer, right, actually can choose either or, right? And so you could give it HLS and or Dash. And mainly because of that original audio drift issue, right, that we spoke about earlier on, uh, you know, we made this movement to have those players potentially take the Dash assets and, you know, use Widevine and the, you know, the, the encryption working with Dash rather than HLS because we we saw that audio drift issue on those players before we ultimately owned the encoding our, and, and the packaging ourselves, right? And so we did not see that audio issue on Dash, just, just a note. Um, cool. Uh, so yeah, anyway, I go ahead and try Apple, Fire TV, both all good. Um, I get to the Roku side of the house and luckily I have some good experience with the Roku and they have a wonderful stream tester in their tools. And I go ahead and throw in this multi-codec playlist into the Roku stream tester and it just eventually craps every time. Right. And it'll play for a little bit. And so I had some videos in that, in that slide presentation, but ultimately it, you know, it was very evident that it would choose one in, uh, codec and then eventually try to switch to the second set of codec. And it, you know, when it tried to make that switch, it would not know what to do. And, and basically the player would crash, right? Now, I will say recently after I gave this talk, um, I had some Roku guys reach out to me in one of the Roku Slack groups and said that they are working on um, the multi-codec support, right? I see. So we created now separate manifests for H.264 and HEVC. And then you had one which was multi-codec as well. And so, um, you know, I guess if the listeners here are ultimately inferring, you remember I said we had 4K um, prior to this on linear channels that, and Roku being one of them, right? And so just, you know, you can kind of infer there that only at the end of the day, the way that we've um, kind of delivered our 4K and it's pure, you know, in that early stages, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still currently this way, was only one you know, variations above. And so you would only see a slate, if you're familiar with the Fubo platform, if you only try to show up, on a 4K live stream, you end up getting redirected to a slate if we ultimately can't tell that you have the ability to A, decode HEVC, and B, uh, actually have um, a screen that's worth seeing HEVC, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's 4K. Correct. That's linear. So basically, this points to the, you know, this really did show that, you know, only at the time and for a while, Roku really wasn't supporting uh, multi codecs the way we would, you know, we were ultimately in theory, breaking HLS back, right? By only putting the higher renditions up there and that we were able to get that broadcast out there, right? Kind of piggybacking off the work that we did originally in the 4K world um, uh, for linear, we ultimately built out a series, of, uh, a set of headers that each player will basically be describing to either A, your edge logic or B, um, you know, the, the some type of stream service, what we call here at Fubo, where all you know, basically, the player is going to identify itself and say, "Hey, I can do these X set of capabilities, right?" And given that fact, the 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 basically the manifest that you are going to be receiving to play will be tailored, you know, kind of similar to, to what we were talking about earlier, which is like for only Fire TVs, but tailored to the types of content that uh, the codecs that are inside of it. So therefore, you can at least understand it, right? So, so now the player is reporting capabilities, so you can send each player the right uh, the right manifest, the right content. Yeah, and so you know, I'm, I'm I've seen kind of like a common uh, theme across the industry, and you know, uh, just watching other uh, companies open source works and things along those lines, and and seeing all the projects that are out there, and that like, you know, some type of proxy manifest rewriting service slash um, code is really useful for for situations just like this, right? I happen to, since it's VOD content, I don't necessarily need to, you know, 
on the request, rewrite my manifest, but ultimately I can easily just uh, produce a manifest that ultimately has only HEVC or only uh, ABC in it when I'm in my uh, transcoding process. And so that was the easiest solution at the time. So three manifests, one of them a multi-codec, one of them only HEVC, and one of them only H.264. Yep. And so funny, as of recent, I've now also added a fourth manifest, which is now um, Dash as well together, right? And so because Roku is using Dash, really my, my output looks like something along the lines of master.m308, which ultimately would have H.264 and H.265 because the only players that we use HLS on our VOD um, that basically play HLS were okay with both codecs, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would produce a master.mpd, which only ever had H.264, and then a master-hevc.mpd, which would only ever have H.265. Uh, as of recently, um, I've actually started now um, you know, revisiting this logic a little bit and say, and now also, again, once again, producing a master-avc-hevc. Right. And so the goal, you know, hopefully Roku fixes this issue in an upcoming OS release. Um, and eventually now I can unify, potentially put everybody together or at least give um, the players that uh, can understand mass, you know, multi-codex. Maybe I can start giving them, uh, you know, actual multi-codex again. Mm-hmm. So now you're experimenting with multi-codec in Dash as well, not only multi-codec in HLS. In reality, if I know you can take HEVC, Maybe I'm only. Maybe it's better to actually only give you HEVC, right? Based on what. That- right. Why would Why would you need the H two six four layers? If you can, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, it, you know, this just leads back to the point again, which is like, you know, um, you know too many options might be a bad thing, and maybe you know, it really comes down to that given player's bitrate logic, right? And so. To me, unless I can measure it and, and have that data and actually, you know, do some type of A-B testing behind it, I don't want to start working on like, you know, I can't optimize for that unless I actually uh, spend the time understanding by changing this, you know, by removing this rendition here, did I actually make a fundamental difference, right? And so that's kind of like where I'm at now when it comes to putting these playlists back together is that I'm going to go ahead and produce 20 million friggin' packages, right? And at the end of the day, start testing with all the different players, how many, what is that pure set of bit rates for every given player, right? Like that they actually, uh, A, stay at the highest quality of the bit rate and B, don't buffer and ultimately uh, just deliver that best experience to the customer. And so this just comes back down to no players are created the same, right? And so every player, you need to kind of understand it and maybe te- and do exactly what we were talking about before, which is tailoring that manifest uh, to that particular player the best that you can. There's so much calculus that goes into, um, you know, choosing these bit rates, uh, you know, and you just mentioned, um, you know, creating a, a wide variety. And then and then ultimately it's about the consumer experience. Right. Um, what package is going to deliver the best quality and, and you know, without buffering, et cetera. Uh, how, what is your methodology, you know, behind doing this? Do you have a formal methodology or is that being developed or are you looking for one, you know, in terms of determining what bit rates in your profiles are, are the best, are optimal? So uh, Mile High 19, there was an opening talk by a gentleman, uh, first name Yuri. I believe he's at Zen at Bright Cove. I'm sure everybody. Yuri Resnick. 
Yeah, yeah. 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 and so Yuri Olubile gave a wonderful talk on all this wonderful complex math that can go into um, picking out those bit rates. I don't want to say I struggle with math, right? Um, you know, I, I've obviously can understand it. I can go through it, but like when it comes to that complexity, right, and the way that he broke it down, um, I can take his formulas and, in theory, uh, once again, in theory, translate it into um, you know code. But I, I, I still to this day, you know, maybe if Yuri wants to reach out to me and kind of give me a little bit of a, you know, uh, in the military we used to call it Barney style, right? of like, what does this actually mean? And like, how does this actually work? Um, and so I haven't gotten to that stage yet. And so I wonder, you know, there, there are these nice principles, once again, going back to this concept of theory again, right? There are all these, uh, there's math behind choosing these bit rates, but at the end of it, um, unless you are a mathematician and can sit there and understand that fundamentals, you know, I, I wouldn't say that should ultimately turn off the way that you're going about it. For me, my approach would be more along the lines of, as I was just kind of describing, which is, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get build a couple feature flags, do a couple A-B tests, ultimately see the averages that come out as I go ahead and say, all right, I'm going to remove one bit rate right now, right? Because this math, what this math is actually not uh, accounting for, more than likely, is the different players' uh, conception and how they actually want to use the bit rates, right? And so, and, and buffer sizes, you, exactly. you know, that all can, these things that are can wreak right? a lot of havoc. All these things are yeah. tweakable. They're all tweakable. Yeah. And so when it really comes down to, for someone like me in the position that, you know, uh, basically being able to control what goes into these manifests, it really, as much as I would love to follow theory and principle behind the math of, um, you know, choosing bit rates, I'm going to start first with giving you all and then eventually go down to a solution where I can A-B test stuff in my, you know, either in production, it, well, actually in production and see what I reflect to that given customer. Right. I, I guess my question though is, is, you know, ultimately, um, and, and, and look, you know, we deal with this too, you know, we're, uh, codec developers. And, uh, so we live in this world of advanced mathematics and, uh, you know, all the image science that goes behind compression. Um, but at the end of the day, it's eyeballs, it's humans who are actually looking at video. And so I'm curious, you know, have you, um, you know, have you found a way, are you able to gather some feedback from your users, uh, you know, uh, even through maybe some basic survey mechanisms? Or, you know, do you have some visual, you know, testing process that you guys go through? Yeah. So um, uh, we have a wonderful product side of our house, right? Um, that basically does do exactly what we were describing more along the lines of the user experience, right? And so, um, I, you know, I think it's really difficult to test content, right? In the sense that, um, you know, based on the content that you provide, like ultimately, does that user want to watch it? So more than like, at least this is my gut feeling. There's not, there not, maybe not Fubo's in the sense that like, you know, at the end of the day, if that user really wanted to watch that particular piece of content, right, they might be okay with a buffering event, right? Um, or they might be around there. And so it really comes down to what was the user's intention? Uh, like how badly do they want to watch that particular piece of content? How new are they to the platform? And so it kind of gets hard to measure certain things here in the sense that, if I, let's say you were a brand new Fubo customer, right? And you saw a buffering event in your first 60 minutes of ever using Fubo versus you've been a Fubo customer for three months and you saw a buffering event, right? Are those two buffering events slash quality, uh, 
equal. That's actually a really, really great point that you just made is, is that depending on where you are in your experience with the service, you, you know, your journey, so to speak, it may or may not be a big issue for you. Right, because the service builds a kind of trust, and 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 you have trust in the service, and you, after three months, yeah, it's happened okay, it happened once, once it's been, in three months. Yeah, you yeah, kind of forget fine. about it. Yeah. But if it happens on the beginning, you don't know if this is a daily event, a weekly event. Yeah, you know, I, I have this theory, like you know, it, it really comes down to does that customer, you know, uh, all, a lot of metrics in this industry go off generalization, right? You know, like basically saying, uh, what's my overall buffering? What's my overall this or that? Which is obviously something you need to, to understand, right? But as I brought up, which is I like, you know, if that customer was a loyal Fubo customer for X amount of months, you know, I kind of feel like the consumer understands that a buffering event is going to happen, right? Uh, every now and then. Going back to players. So uh, one of the challenges that every service has to deal with is just the literal hundreds. In fact, I think it's more accurately thousands of SDKs that you could support and devices. And, you know, there's just, um, uh, you know, it's crazy, right? Uh, how, um, you know, how are you guys choosing to select what devices that you you are supporting, what devices you're not supporting? And maybe you can tell us um, what are the major platforms that you're supporting, you know, for connected TV, obviously iOS, Android, you know, the apps, Roku, we've talked about, but, um, you know, can you share with us? We are adding more and more of these platforms. And so this what this really points to is the call and need for automation and testing that uh, Netflix wrote a wonderful article on uh, in their technology blog about like how they literally had to like build a team just for their testing of like all of these different devices. Right. And like, it's not a simple one, two solution. Um, but to go, to go back to supporting, right. Roku, I, I can talk probably best about Roku. And I know as of recently though, um, we're, we're probably uh, Roku themselves might not be support like they have all these really old rokus right and we have a decent amount of customers on particularly old rokus and so talking to roku probably about a year or so ago um you know they're trying to figure this out which is how do they get people to upgrade right and so i jokingly actually said i was like guys why don't we just send these customers better rokus because it'll actually cost us like 30 dollars to send them a brand new roku and they'll actually stick around <laughs> comparatively to not supporting exactly. their given yeah. device at some point yeah yeah so <laughs> so sending the customer a new device is cheaper than developing the software or, or to supporting support the them device. you know because because features don't work so i i have personal experience with this so i had um not an original roku box it was i i guess it was a second generation i don't know you know so it's like seven years old or something eight years old and um and i just a couple months ago upgraded because i think it was uh disney plus yes disney plus was not going to be available on it. And um, they sent me a notice. Roku sent me a notice saying that um, uh, Netflix updates and, you know, and, and it was very, um, it was very interesting how they, how they messaged to me as a user, as a customer. Um, I didn't really feel like I was forced, you know, like, like, Hey, you know, upgrade your old box. But it was extremely clear to me the way the notice was written, everything that, you know, look, if you want to have the best entertainment experience, you know, upgrade. And they gave me a discount. And, um, let me tell you the new experience is so much better than the old one, you know? So when a consumer, I mean, in other words, I really felt like, wow, I really got something when I upgraded, 
you know? Um, and, and yet it's a challenge because it's not even a cost thing. Right. I mean, I think, you know, like everybody can kind of afford a, a $40 box. Right. But it's that hurdle of going to the store or ordering it, having to unplug the old one, plug in the new one. You know, there's, there's that hurdle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Install it, it configure exactly, it, put in the Wi-Fi. Exactly, exactly. And I can see their challenge. It's really, really, really difficult to get a consumer to do that when they're like, well, it's working. You know, it's like I'll tell you one thing too. Their ownership of this thing called the Roku TV is incredible. I mean, like, I actually know for a fact that they pretty much forked their code repository because we would have issues that would exist on a Roku TV that didn't exist on a Roku Puck, right? And only I remember asking them, they have their own separate process between the two of them. And uh, when we were launching the original 4K for Linear, um, I remember like playback not really working well on certain Roku 4K TVs that we were like, we were one of the first people to give them test streams, right? To be like, here's a Linear 4K uh, encoded Dash stream and or HLS. We tried both. Uh, it turns out Dash Linear for 4K worked better on Roku than HLS did. And, um, you know, it's just this, this concept of this TV I spend $300 and I go ahead and get a 4k TV and a Roku built into it. It's like incredible. And they're, they're, you know, what, what a great organization as far as like innovation and, and how they've been able to stay relevant in times of, you know, I guess you'd say the world of 4k. Yeah. And, and, and the world of, of giants, because all of their competitors are giants. I mean, who, who's playing in this space? It's Google Chromecast, it's Apple TV, it's Amazon Fire TV. And uh, uh, an independent company called Rocky, which has a, a amazing um, market share and stay independent um, and competes with all of these giants. It's really amazing. You know what? Coming from the Apple TV world, right? Because I, I worked on Apple TV before Roku. And then I eventually get into this, this world, this thing called BrightScript and like, you know, actually start using a Roku. There's just something about the simplicity behind it, right? Um, that actually, that they really, they really do understand the concept that video is what the user is ultimately looking for. They're not looking for this like really fancy animation to get to that video. They're looking to get to the video, right? And so I think, you know, they've stayed true to that uh, perspective and it, it, it shows in the numbers from both quality perspective, meaning like the Roku player to this day from the last I've looked at it, hands down performs better than any of our players um, in production. And ultimately uh, also from the perspective of they own the market share and that Roku is our most used platform. So Nick, what, what are you working on right now? What, what are you uh, building or fixing um, uh, at this moment that uh, challenges you? So I, I finally got, um, so we are covering um, BBC's new show, Seven Worlds, One Planet, right? In 4K. So first of all, we finally launched 4K. Um, finally, meaning in the sense that um, I did a lot of the upfront work to support the 4K, what we were speaking about with packaging, right? Earlier on. Um, and uh, PR went out, two weeks ago or three weeks ago that we were going to cover, you know, we needed that push, I guess you could say, to, to work internally, right? To basically get this thing called 4K and uh, presented to the consumer from a metadata standpoint. So this is something interesting to note is that um, from a metadata standpoint, um, we the industry really like, let's say you have an HD version and a 4K version of the same asset, right? Is that the same TMS ID? It's it, something to think about, right? And so as we've ultimately, um, you know, we've had to navigate that, those issues. We've had to like, basically we're making a separate series for the particular 4K series versus the particular HD series. And so we finally worked all of those cranks out. And so big thanks to any of my coworkers that might be listening to this when I share it to them and make them listen to it. But um, 
Uh, but no, seriously, there was a lot of there was a lot of work that didn't involve building video that went into eventually getting our 4K launch out the door, right? Um, and so I really appreciate everybody's hard work and effort on that end internally here. And so now, um, uh, you know, we are starting to to get PQ color right for this particular BBC uh, episode. And so I've been working on looking into HDR support, right? Um, basically trying to, uh, you know, something that's interesting in, in the role that I am in is that going back to the providers and building out a provider relationship that will build in the sense that how can I get the highest quality version of that piece of content that you want me to, to deliver, right? Because sometimes providers will ultimately uh, bake in ads, right? They'll do. Uh, they'll, they'll encode the encoded video, the the studio's version of the video, before it reaches me. And so, you know, it's hard to produce high quality content um, when ultimately I don't be when I'm not given as high as quality content I can absolutely get. Right? You're compressing, compressed in a sense, right? And so, um, mainly my focuses are on that like side of the house in the world right now, and also. Um, basically giving a score as I, as I mentioned earlier, which is like building out this concept of, you know, whether PSNR or VMAF, like running all of these different uh, analysis is on the produced pieces of content that I have and giving some type of number numeric value to the produced assets of quality perspective to then eventually hopefully get to a place to start tweaking configurations where I can, you know, A, tie that number in this quality metric, but then B, understand what uh, the reality of a QOE looks like for that given consumer. Uh, by the way, regarding the BBC, do they provide the content in uh, HLG, HDR? Because they're one of the inventors of HLG. Or they also use HDR10. It seems like the assets that we are getting delivered uh, is not probably what's coming from the studio, right? And so the the output that we have doesn't look as good as i would like it to and would what would want it to and also for us to feel like you know we are advertising that we have this content in 4k and so now this this turns into a game of ultimately you know talking to every talking to the providers building out that relationship understanding is there something better that they can give me why why is that is it a matter of money okay if it's a matter of money let's go talk to the content people right like you know and try to build and understand that because what we are currently getting delivered is, is not as high quality as I would like it to be. You know, Dror and I um, like to think as we're producing uh, each of these interviews, you know, insights per minute and um, insights per minute. Yes. And you almost broke the speed record for insights per minute. <laughs> thank you for coming on. How can um, you know, how can people reach you if they want to reach out? I know you have some resources, so why don't you share uh, some of the links and, you know, if, if you want your email, uh, Nick at Fubo.tv, please reach out. Anybody who has any questions on this packaging and navigating through things, right. Please do so. Um, and I recently launched, um, awesome dot video. It, it's a repo. If you're familiar with like awesome lists and whatnot. Um, and I also, so basically HTTPS awesome dot video. And I pretty much have put, uh, all of the research that I've had to do and learn about this concept of video and, and mainly from the encoding side, from the player side and, and I've already had, you know, a couple PRs from people in the industry. And so, you know, just to the industry as, as a whole, I guess, as I'm addressing, because this is an industry podcast here, it, let's keep it up, right? Let's keep sharing these things. Let's ultimately keep helping each other and, and ultimately really delivering, you know, getting to the point where we truly are putting the consumer of that video first. And so we're not hoarding things internally and saying, oh, I know that, but he doesn't, right? And so... That's kind of been my focus is like 
here's all these things that I learned about. Here's all these links and put them in one place, right? And so uh, the video dev community has been awesome. You can find me in there, the Slack group, uh, Nick, at Nick, right? And so, yeah, uh, awesome.video, Nick at Fubo.tv and ultimately or in the video dev group, uh, just at Nick. Well, thanks again, Nick. It was really great talking with you on the Video Insiders. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and what you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.